The topic this morning is the, the, the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper and the will of God. And as we talk about uh, the Last Supper, you know, this is a monumental event in Christendom. This is one of the few things that practically every Christian uh, denomination uh, experiences or practices uh, together. This is one of the things that all over the world today that people would be participating in. And it really was inaugurated 2,000 years ago by Christ at the Last Supper. And I want us to, to look at that for just a moment. But I want us to have a little bit of an understanding before we get into this. Uh, you know, a lot, a lot of us are kind of like the little girl uh, who was four years old who uh, usually went to Sunday school. But that particular day, she came into the service with her parents. And as the tray was passed and uh, the cup was taken and the bread was taken, she looked at her mom. She goes, Mom, the preschool snacks are a lot better and you get a lot more of them. <laughs> and some of us are kind of like that. We don't always resonate with the intended purpose or particularly understand the depth of what is occurring. There's a couple of terms, I think, that are important for us to understand before we can really fully understand what the Lord's Supper is or what the Last Supper was uh, and what we call communion today. Uh, number one is what was Passover? Now, Passover, the simple definition, and by the way, some would debate whether it's eight days or seven days, but most Orthodox Jews would say it's an eight-day festival that celebrates the deliverance of Israel uh, from the bondage of the Egyptians. Okay, so Passover was this. Most of you know the story well. In the book of Exodus, uh, the, the Hebrew people, they weren't yet known as the Israelites at this point, uh, are in captivity and slavery to the Egyptians. And for 400 years, they've been in bondage. And they cry out to Jehovah Yahweh God, not even knowing who He is, don't, not even having His personal name at that point. They cry out to God, and God hears their prayers, and He sends them a deliverer named Moses, of course. And Moses goes through a series of events, through plagues that are uh that are acted upon or that God sends uh, upon uh, the nation of Egypt because the Pharaoh is unwilling to release uh, the Hebrew children. And so it comes to the final plague, the tenth and final plague. And Moses goes once again to Pharaoh. Pharaoh denies him the opportunity. And he comes back and God tells Moses, this is what you are to do. You are to take a lamb and you are to kill it, and you are to take the blood, and you are to apply it to the post, the door of your house. Take that blood and make the mark upon your door. And when the angel, death angel comes by, he will pass over every home that has the blood applied. Now, what's interesting, notice what he didn't say. He didn't say he'll pass over all the Hebrew homes. He didn't say that. He said every home for which the blood has been applied. So if you were a Hebrew and you go, you know, I don't think I'm going to do that. I don't think I'm going to waste a lamb. I don't think I'm going to do that. And by the way, they, would, they were to eat that lamb that evening as well. But if you chose not to do that, then the death angel came to your house. And the truth was, whether you're Egyptian or Hebrew, every home 
that didn't have the blood applied had a dead son. Every home that had the blood applied had a dead lamb. The question was, what were they going to choose? But it was the blood sacrifice that was required for the angel to pass over. God was enacting his judgment for one day. The judgment on all who had sinned, all who were unrighteous. So for one day, that veil is torn, is, is removed, so to speak, and the judgment of God comes upon mankind. And the only thing that would save you was the blood of a lamb. Now, we call that term substitutionary atonement. That's a seminary word. And it simply means this. It means that Christ paid the penalty for our sins by being our substitute upon the cross, therefore covering the cost of our sin. You know, what does that mean? Well, let me give you a bad illustration, then I'll give you a better one. Um, Let me give you one, because when we're talking about the magnitude of the atonement of God, uh, then it becomes difficult to put it in human terms. But let me just get you started. First of all, if you have a teenager, uh, God help you. If you have a 16, 17, 18-year-old and they drive, the probability is they're driving a car that you've paid for. You're paying for insurance and you're covering those costs. And the Lord forbid if they would total that car, if they would wreck that car and someone else's car is totaled, because you know what happens at that point. They don't have any money. So what happens? You must absorb it. You must cover it. Because of the premiums that you've paid and any out-of-pocket costs, you have to cover it because they're not capable of covering it. That's a picture of substitutionary atonement. That's a, a, not a great illustration, but that just gives you kind of an indicator of what it means to... See, when you see atonement, substitutionary atonement, someone always has to absorb the pain, absorb the cost. And that's exactly what occurs in substitutionary atonement. So you say, why is this? Because this is difficult for a lot of people, isn't it? Uh, maybe you've even asked the question, why did, why did it have to be that way? Why, why did God come up with that system? Well, first of all, because God is holy. God is holy and He's perfect and He is pure. And sin cannot be in the presence of God. Sin cannot be a part of who He is or what He pertains to. And so, Because of His holiness, sin must be dealt with. Number two, God is just. Now, we don't like that when it talks about us. We don't like to talk about the whole justness of God. But the truth of it is, we want justice in life, don't you? When you go to, if if that had been your car that had gotten wrecked, that somebody totaled, you would want that party to be responsible. If someone has injured you or maimed you, you want justice. If someone is killed a loving, you want justice. Of course, unless it's you that did it, then you go, well, then I don't want much justice. But I want justice for everybody else. I want our judges not to just hear a sad story and just say, well, okay, you killed this person, but I'm sure you won't do it again. No, that wouldn't be a good judge. That wouldn't be a just judge. We want justice. And here's what we know, that, that every sin has a recompense of reward. That one day God will redeem the righteous, and redeem those who have called Him Lord, but justice will be served. So you don't have to wonder why do people get away with things and why do the the, the uh, sinful and why do the guilty go unpunished. One day, justice will come, and God must deal with sin because He's just and because He is holy. And that's the third point. Man is a sinner. 
We've all sinned. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, we like to think of terms of good people and bad people. And, of course, we're the good people. That's the way we like to think. But the Bible doesn't talk about good people and bad people. No, certainly there are people who are better and people who are worse. We'll give you that. But good and bad, that's not the way the Bible talks. The Bible looks at it as those who are covered, those who have received the grace and those who've not. So the question becomes, have we received the grace and the atoning sacrifice, the covering of God? Because God is holy, there must be a payment for sin. Sin must be dealt with. And atonement is made uh, when bloodshed, according to Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, uh, it's, it's made when sacrificial death is accepted by God. Okay? And then lastly, Christ's atoning death absorbed or removed the penalty of sin. Now, let me give you another illustration. I think it's much better. In 1987, on flight 225 on Northwest Airlines out of Detroit, Michigan, a plane went, that, that flight 225, uh, shortly after it had taken off, crashed. Uh, as a matter of fact, near a highway. <coughs> and when it crashed, there were 156 people on board. 155 of them died. They're dead. And there was this one girl, Cecilia Park, who um, who they, they discovered. And, and matter of fact, many were wondering, did she just walk up after the accident? How could she have lived when everyone else was dead on impact? How did that occur? And what they discovered was that her name certainly was on the list. She had checked in. And what happened was when the plane was going down, her mother took her uh, took her seatbelt off and belted, um, she belted Cecilia, and then she held her and covered her upon the seat and held on for dear life. And her mother absorbed the shrapnel and the impact and everything else that killed everyone else. And Cecilia lived. That's a picture of atonement. That Christ covered us and absorbed the death of our sin. That when we believe in Him and trust Him, it is applied to our account. That's the picture right there of atonement. And as we come this morning, uh, I think it's important for us to understand a, a few things. Of course, uh, when we come, uh, our, uh, we come with this, rec- uh, this one fact we have to understand before we receive of communion is that we need Christ. We need Him. That we are incapable of saving ourselves. That it's only by His grace, love, and forgiveness that we can know salvation. So we need Him. We see our dependency upon Christ. That's the prerequisite to being saved. We must recognize we're sinners. He's perfect. And we are totally dependent upon Him for our salvation. A lot of times people will say this. They'll go, you know, how do you certify who should be taking communion in your church? It's my, I have an answer I want to give, but I, I just try to be a little nicer than that. Um, I go, what do you mean? Well, I know there's some people in here that probably shouldn't be taking communion. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, you're one of them. Uh, I mean, if I go back to what Jesus said, he let the sinner come in. He was, it, was the, it was the Pharisee who came to the synagogue talking about how righteous he was and how worthy he was and how unworthy the other, you know. When you are focused on what other people should be doing, that's the time to examine your heart right there, okay? Examine your heart 
It's not that you've sinned. We all sinned this past week. And God doesn't go great on the curb and say, well, you didn't sin that bad. You're fine. Ooh, that was a bad sin. You don't get to take it. I mean, God's not thinking that. That's the way we think. We've all sinned. It's the condition of your heart. Do you recognize your sin? Do you repent of it? Do you recognize your need for Him? Or are you worried about who else is receiving communion? Are you worried about what everybody else is doing? Do you not really see the need? This is just something I just kind of do then your heart's not right and you shouldn't receive. But if you recognize, I'm a sinner. I don't deserve this. I'm unworthy to even partake, then you're ready. Your heart's right. And we do that together as a group of sinners who have been passed over because of the blood of Christ. And we look forward in anticipation to the day when God will make all things right, when Jesus once again comes. Now, we're going to read some scripture here in just a moment in Mark chapter 14 that tells the story of how the Last Supper is instituted. They're at the Passover meal, and there are five aspects of the Passover meal. First of all, there's the eating of the matzah. And by the way, uh, that's what we use here at our church. Every once in a while, somebody will tell me, why don't you use the crackers like you're supposed to? And I'm saying, I'm sure Jesus had those little crackers at his local Kroger, but um, but Jesus used something of this nature, most likely. Uh, this is what they used for Passover. And then they would drink from uh, four cups of wine. There were four cups. As a matter of fact, there would be, typically, uh, some Jewish scholars said there would be a fifth place setting set for Elijah, in anticipation of the forerunner who would proclaim the Messiah who would come. But they would have the four cups, and the first cup represented that I, I took you out of bondage. And then the second cup would be I, I saved you, I rescued you. And then the third, third cup was I redeemed you from judgment. And the fourth one was I have taken you as my people. Jesus stands that night, and they've probably, most scholars think they finished the second cup, and they're coming to the third cup. And Jesus does something that must have been shocking to the disciples. And by the way, there were probably others in that room other than just the disciples. There were probably other followers. But he does something very shocking. He does this. If you have your Bibles in verse 22, he says this. And as they were eating, he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, gave it to them, and said, take and eat. This is my body. So he took the bread and he broke it, and he gave it, he blessed it, and he gave it to them. And he said, I, I want you to take, this is my body. And typically they had taken the matzah, and they would receive it, and it was a rem reminder of the bread of the affliction of which they had suffered, their parents or their patriarchs had suffered under the hand of Pharaoh. It was the bread of sorrow for all those years of suffering. And Jesus now says, this is my body. And I don't, he's not talking about his literal body. He's saying, this is, this is symbolic of, of my body, of how I will suffer, how I will be afflicted. That must have been awful, awfully mesmerizing to the disciples, wondering what's going on. And then he takes the cup and he says this, after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and so they all drank from it. By the way, they apparently all drank from the same cup. 
for those of you who are wondering if, uh, you know, if we should be using the little cups or big cups, how we should do it. Again, I believe this is descriptive. We've talked about this before in the Bible. It describes how things are done, and sometimes there are prescriptions. The Ten Commandments obviously are prescriptions. There are things that we are prescribed, but then there are descriptions of how they occurred. And it's described that's how it was done in the Lord's Supper. So it's great if you do it the way, but it's really more of the description than the prescription. So it's described that they assume the the same cup. But it's not uh, a mandate that we must all drink from the same cup. This is my blood that establishes the covenant. Your translation might even use the word the new covenant. So what has the covenant been up to this point? That a lamb would be slaughtered and that its blood would be applied upon your account. And Jesus said, I'm making a new covenant. A new covenant that will end the sacrificial system as we know it. A new covenant, it will be my blood that is given, that is applied. Uh, Ravi Zacharias talks, tells a story about how uh, he was in India one time. Uh, the Taj Mahal had been attacked. Terrorists had come in and over 200 people were killed. And one man who had escaped and survived uh, when the shooting started, his friend grabbed him, threw him under the table, and they both under the table. He said, and his friend ended up being killed. But they asked why? Why did the uh, why did the gunman walk past you when they had seemingly killed everybody else? He said, I think it's because my friend's blood was all over my body. He said, I was saved because of the blood of my friend. That's the picture for us. Because of the blood of Christ has been given for us, we are seen as alive. We are seen as forgiven, as being saved. You have your Bibles. If you will notice in chapter 14, beginning in the 29th verse, Peter told him, Jesus, if everyone else runs away, I will certainly not. You ever had somebody make a promise to you? that they weren't able to keep? Someone ever tell you they're going to be there for you? Always? They weren't able to do it? Maybe it was a former spouse. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was an employee, a business partner, a friend. And they may have meant it, but then life became too difficult. The cost was too high. Verse 29, excuse me, verse 30. I assure you, Jesus said to him, speaking to Peter, today this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter keeps insisting, if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. Then they came to the place called Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to deeply be distressed and horrified. Does that kind of strike you a little bit, that Jesus is distressed? And as this translation uses the word horrified, I think we can at least say he's scared. God in the flesh, fully God but fully man, feeling the same things you and I would have felt if we were in that situation. Jesus, with the full knowledge of what's about to happen, 
about his death, about the crucifixion, and how it will be alone and how God himself, the Father, will have to stand by as Jesus endures this alone. And they came to the place called Gethsemane. He told his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, John, and James, and they began to be, and he was deeply distressed and horrified. And then he said to them, my soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. Jesus' one request, would you just sit here with me and stay awake while I pray. They can see and hear the suffering the agony. And then he went a little further and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He begins to desperately pray. And he says this, Abba, Daddy, in the Aramaic, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away, this cup of suffering, this act that I'm about to perform, God, is there another way? Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. God, this is what I'm asking. This is what I'm wanting. This is what I'm feeling. Can we do this another way? But not my will, but your will. Then he came and found them sleeping. Simon? Aren't you the one that said that you'd be with me all the time? You would always be with me? You'd be next to me? Are you sleeping? He asked Peter, couldn't you stay awake for one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Simon, you need to be praying right now. Because there are forces that are coming against me that are dark and evil. And they're coming against you too. They will come against you. You need to pray. I know that you think you're strong, but your faith is weak. Your flesh is weak. And once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And he came again and found them sleeping, really, because they could not keep their eyes open. They did not know what to say to him. And then he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. Look, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go see. My betrayer is near. And while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived with him with a mob with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And his betrayer had given them a signal. The one I kiss, he said, he's the one. Arrest him and take him away under guard. And so when he came, he went right up to him and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And then they took hold of him and arrested him. And one of those who stood by drew the sword. We know this is Peter from the other gospel writers. Struck his ear, the high priest's slave, and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs as though I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I was among you teaching in the temple complex and you didn't arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. This has been prophesied Zechariah chapter 3 verse 17 that the lamb will be led away to the slaughter then they all deserted him and ran away 
And this all happened under the heading of God's will. God's will. Boy, that's kind of difficult, isn't it? I think that if nothing else, we ought to glean this strength and this encouragement from this story, from this passage. That I can be in the middle of God's will and everything not look and feel and be right. Jesus certainly is right in the middle of God's will. You can be in God's will and still be scared. Jesus is scared. If it's okay for Jesus to be scared, it's okay for you to be scared. Jesus is scared. He's horrified. He's felt the same feeling you and I would have in that position. And not only that is he scared, but he's suffering. He's suffering immensely because he knows what this means. He feels the full weight. He feels the oppression. He sees the vision. He understands what's about to happen. And not only that, he begins to desperately pray. You ever find yourself in that position where you're praying and your words don't even match? You don't even know what you're saying. You can't get a congruent thought going here. And you're just spouting out words and you're wondering, does this, does this matter? Does this work? Maybe I need to settle down and come back when I can really pray. You know what? Jesus was desperately praying in that situation. And sometimes we're in a situation where the Spirit intercedes for us when we have words and feelings and a heart that's so deep that all we can do is groan and cry out. I believe that's right where Jesus was. And it's interesting, Jesus is in that spot. But he prays this prayer. He says, Father, this is what I want. And it's okay for us to pray this. Jesus, can you remove this situation? Jesus, can you heal? Can you fix? Can you change? Can you transform? We can ask that. And ultimately you say, God, but I trust you. That's what Jesus said. God, this is what I want. Father, this is what I ask. But not my will, yours. Boy, that's a hard piece, isn't it? To say, God, I trust you. I know that you are the God of the universe and that you love me. And you love those who are near me. And this is my request, but I place it in your hands and I will still trust you. That's big, isn't it? That's where you separate the the women from the little girls, the men from the boys, faith-wise. It doesn't mean that's what you feel. Hey, Jesus didn't feel like dying. If you ever wondered, just read that passage. We live in a culture that says, well, if that's what you feel, you should do it. And if you don't feel it, then don't do it. Can I tell you, that's a really stupid way to live. Because what if I feel like slapping you? Should I do that? You wouldn't like it a whole lot. God has a higher standard and He understands what's happening in our economy, so to speak. He sees, He hears, He knows. And He still wants us to just surrender to Him. God, not my will, but Yours. And then lastly, you can be in God's will and be forsaken. Be forsaken. Maybe from someone who promised they would be there. Or at least whom you expected. You can be forsaken. Jesus was. He was scared. He suffered. He was desperately praying. He surrenders. And on top of it, he's forsaken by those who are closest to him.
maybe you're here this morning and you are wondering and maybe you've bought into a pseudo-gospel that said, you know what, if you really believe and you really trust, then things will be good. Everything will be fine. Everything will be right. And you'll be okay. Well, I tell you this. I do believe that God will redeem it. God will redeem every pain, every experience, every hurt, every injustice that the believer suffers. It will be redeemed. I do believe that. But it does not mean that we will not experience them here on earth. The truth of it is, if Jesus experienced them, why would we think that we wouldn't? Now, that doesn't make us feel a whole lot better. But here's what we can know is that we love and serve a God who can redeem all things. He can heal, He can transform, He can change, or He can take those sufferings, those difficulties, and He can use them for His glory. I want to share with you an old story that I've heard many times growing up that really rings home this point. <clears throat> there was a poor man in a village, and it was a poor family. But they owned a beautiful white stallion. And that white stallion, his father had been in his father's family, and that stallion in its bloodline had been in that family for hundreds of years. And so this white stallion was the pride of this family, but they were poor. The poorest family in the village. And one time, a a neighboring ruler in another uh, in a nearby state came by and saw the stallion and said, I want that stallion. And he offered him a large sum of money and the, the poor man said no. And he offered him an even larger sum of money and the poor man said no. And even a third larger portion. And the old man said, no, I will not sell. And the king left, the ruler left. Some of the villagers heard about it and they go, why would you not have done that? That would have given you a new home. All your debts would have been paid. Why would you have not done that? You are a fool, old man. And the old man said, you know, it's too early to tell whether that was the right decision or wrong. It's too early to make that judgment. It's too early to say that. And a couple of weeks later, that stallion ran off. And he was gone. And some of his neighbors came and said, Oh man, see, you are a fool. If you would have sold that horse, you would have your home taken care of. You would have plenty to eat. But now you have nothing and the horse is gone. You're a fool. And the old man said, Well, it's too early to say that. It's too early to tell. A couple of weeks later, that stallion returned with three beautiful white mares. And the villagers came and said, Oh man, you were so wise. We were wrong and you were right. Now you have these three mares that you can sell and keep your horse. What a wise man you are. And the old man said, It's too early to say. It's too early to tell. Two weeks later, his son, his only son, was out breaking one of the mares, preparing it to sell, and he was thrown off the horse and broke both of his legs. And the neighbors came once again and they said, Oh man, you're a fool. Why didn't you just sell those horses? You didn't have to break them. Why did you go to the problem of doing that? You should have just sold them. And 
your son wouldn't be crippled. And the old man said, it's too early to say. It's too early to tell. Just a few weeks later, war broke out in that country with the neighboring country. And they came and they gathered up all the young men. And most of the villagers' sons were killed in battle. Then the neighbors came and said, Oh man, you're so wise. You are so wise to have not to let your son ride that horse. For many of us lost our sons, but yours are alive. You're so wise. And once again, the old man said, It's too early to say. It's too early to tell. Jesus' disciples, those who were the followers, those who were looking from the outside, when they saw what happened that night, many of them thought, we've wasted our lives. This is terrible. This is the end. What fools we must have been. But it was too early to tell. On that Friday, Jesus was nailed to a cross, nails driven through His hands and His feet. And many mocked Him. And most everyone said, oh, what a waste. What a waste of life. What a waste for those who followed. What a waste. This nice man has died. But it was too early to tell. Because on the third day, he rose from the grave. And he conquered sin and death. And for all who believed, they are forgiven. They are redeemed. And every pain and every sorrow one day will be redeemed for all those who trust. So if you're suffering today, if you're struggling today, if you're wondering, I don't know why, or I don't know if I want to keep going, let me tell you this, it's too early to say that. God can still redeem your situation. He can still redeem your life. You may think I'm older. What do I have left that I can do? It's too early to say. It's too early to quit. Hey, if you've never trusted Christ, I want to invite you to do that. To recognize that He absorbed the penalty of sin because of the holiness and the justice of God. It had to be dealt with. So He absorbed it. And He covered it with His blood. Have you received that grace and forgiveness? You can do that today. And it's not too early to do it today. Let's pray. Father, thank You that while we were still sinners, You died. And Lord, if there's one here that doesn't know You, I pray, God, that You would lead them into repentance. That they would trust You with their lives. And they would confess their sin. That they need You. Invite You to come in their life and forgive You. Of their, and for You to forgive them of their sins. And You become the Lord of their life. Lord, for those of us who are believers. For those who are suffering or struggling. For those who are desperately praying today. For those who feel forsaken. Would You remind them that it's too early to quit. It's too early to say. For our God is a healer. For our God is the God of second and third and fourth chances. Our God redeems. So Lord, we're going to believe and to trust that You redeem. And You know what our will is. You know what we're requesting. But for those of us who would be so brave as to say, God, not my will but Yours, I will trust You. I place my life in Your hand. I place my circumstances, my job, my relationships, my family my life. You know my heart. You know my desire. But God, I place it in your hands. And I trust you. May God be glorified this day. In your name we pray.